0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In a single year, 2014, Denver paid almost $10 million to settle claims that its sheriff's deputies used too much force. As recently as last November, an inmate's death sparked a public outcry. Now the city has introduced a new policy that imposes much tougher limits on how much force deputies can use. Denver Sheriff Patrick Furman joins us to discuss this new policy and a boatload of other changes that have been recommended for his department. And Sheriff, welcome to the program. Thank you. This new policy means essentially that deputies are required to consider nonviolent options before using force on an inmate. When they do use force, it has to be the least possible amount to end the threat. Respond to someone who hears that and thinks, well, that's a no-brainer, force only when necessary.
1: Well, you know, it's and it's really what it is is it's changing uh, the perspective, and and really what we're asking the deputies to do is,
0: um,
1: and again, when they have the ability um, to to look at for at, at de-escalation as a first option, um, and so the the policy really focuses on not necessarily what they can do, uh, but what they should do. Um, a lot of times in 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 the past in a lot of departments, they talk about you know th- this is how much you can get by with legally. Uh, we wanted to kind of flip that on its on its side and, and say, look, you know, we know what you can do legally, but but here's really what you should do, and so this policy focuses on that. Um, and again, it it understands the fact that um, you know, as sheriff's deputies, we we deal with an incredibly difficult population. Everybody that comes through our doors is, um, you know, has some issue going on. They're in crisis. They're they've got mental health issues. They've got substance abuse issues. Um, so a lot of times, our deputies are are responding to behavior. And so there, there are many times that, that we, we know and we understand that um, there's going to be a force. There's going to be use of force incidences because we're responding to that behavior and there's no time. Uh, what this policy does is it looks at um, those those times when there are opportunities where uh, the deputy can step back and put a plan together, can get supervisor there, uh, can get some backup, um, and, and utilize interpersonal communication skills to, to de-escalate that situation as opposed to looking at forces. Um, it, As a a first option,
0: yeah. The policy makes reference to verbal judo. What does that mean? Verbal judo is it's kind
1: of a a catchphrase in in the law enforcement uh, field, but it's you know it really is using interpersonal communication skills to deal with with behavior. What does that sound like?
0: Take me into the jail and and paint us a picture of what that looks like and sounds like.
1: Well, you know, you've got people, as I said, people that are coming in, uh, especially down at our intake area. We have. Uh, We have about 25% of our population have some type of mental health issue. Uh, Many of them are coming in. They're under the influence of some type of drug or alcohol, or they're going through detox from from drug or alcohol. Um, And so, you know, you've got individuals that have a lot of different things going on. They're in crisis mode. Um, They're not responding like people who aren't in crisis mode are responding to things. And so um, this idea of verbal judo, uh, CIT, which is crisis intervention training, uh, emphasizes kind of understanding where people are at. Um, and, and taking that and um, looking at different ways to communicate with them. For example, um, you know, somebody may be schizophrenic and may be hearing, you know, 50 different voices in their head. It may not be that they're not listening to you. It may be not that they're, they're not hearing you. Um, and so our deputies need to kind of understand that and, and look at that from a different perspective um, that people are in crisis and, and, and there, are, there are other ways
0: to deal with that. Are there types of scenarios that are most likely to escalate quickly?
1: Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 biggest issue that we have is down in our intake area and that's where people are coming in fresh off the street. Um, they've just been arrested. Um, like I said, they may be, uh, currently under the influence of something. And so it's a very volatile situation, very volatile area down in our intake area. Um, you know, we do have uh, areas up in our, uh, special management units where we, where we house people that, um, may have some particular mental health issues or behavioral issues, um, so things can can escalate very quickly, especially with the population that we're dealing with. Yeah,
0: and and it makes me wonder if deputies truly are equipped to deal with complex mental health issues. Um, I, I suppose there can be training in de escalation, but at a certain point, are you asking a law enforcement official to be doing the job of a mental health professional?
1: yeah and, and I think you're right and i and I think it's changing and it 's not an issue that 's unique to Denver. This is something that you see across our nation with um with jails uh really becoming kind of the de facto mental health institution as we as we close down the formal uh mental health institutions um there's there's no place left for them to go, and so the the default to that is they get dropped off at the at the jail um and so you know most a lot of times our our deputies are not equipped and so one of the things that we're committed to doing is, is we're committed to getting all of our deputies trained in this CIT, this crisis intervention training. Um, we think that's important uh, to give them some, some skills and some more tools in order to deal with this population because, um, because it's changing. I think jails across the country are becoming more and more filled with uh, individuals
0: with mental health issues. We spoke to the president of the Sheriff's Deputies Union, Mike Jackson, who thinks this new use of force policy will increase the risk to deputies, to inmates and to other jail staff. You put
2: everybody at risk when you don't react. And this is what this policy will do. It will make deputies be hesitant to react because they 'll be thinking about this policy, and did they do all these things because they know i'm going to have to write these things, and if i don't write these things then i 'm going to be subjected to discipline
0: Sheriff, can I get your response
1: yeah, you know i think I think change is hard um, anytime that we introduce something like a new policy um, it's tough, and we're in the process right now. We've started our uh, the in service training this week, actually, with with our staff uh, to help them understand the policy, help them understand what some of the changes are. I think some of that fear comes from just not understanding exactly what it what it entails. Um, a lot of this policy was done with uh, committee work, and so we had uh, forty four different individuals from within the community, from within the sheriff's department. Uh, we had representation from the FOP at at those committees. Um
3: For so I think,
1: please. The fraternal order police, yes. Um, and so, you know, I think there, there's always that, that not knowing, and so there's, there's this uh, tendency sometimes to catastrophize things. Um, I, I'm confident that once the deputies understand what the policy is, uh, most of what the, you know, we've been talking about this for a while now. This isn't something where, uh, you know, this, this policy comes out and all of a sudden tomorrow everything's different. Um, we've been talking about de-escalation. We've been talking about the importance of that. Uh, we've been, We've been training that in our academies. Um this this policy is really a formalization of all of these previous conversations that we had that we believe will help staff better understand what it is that we're looking for. So um you know when when Mike Jackson says that you know the deputies are going to now hesitate before they act, um that's really what we want them to do. We want them to to think about whether or not they can deescalate something uh before they react. And so we we think that that's going to create a safer environment for both the inmates and for our staff. Um, We understand and we've we've continually emphasized the fact that we we know there will be use of force incidences It's just the nature of what we do Um, And we understand that there are going to be many times where deputies don't have the opportunity uh, to take a step back and think through that and um, So there are going to be instances where the where the deputies are going to have to to defend themselves and are going to have to use force Um, We're continuing to train force in our academies. You know, we we continue to train self-defense uh, we're not taking those skills away from them. That that's it's an incredibly important thing for what we do. Are
0: there bad apples you have to get rid of?
1: Um, you know, I think I think within any organization, I think there's people that are you know that make everybody else look bad. I think um, you know there there will be people in in our organization that are not going to be able to to grasp this policy or not going to be able to deal with this type of population. And I think we, you know we're committed to um, identifying those individuals and and when we can. Um, salvage them, give them some additional training, give them some mentorship, um, and those that that just can't or won't um, get it, then then we're going to do
0: what we can to get them out. In addition to the new rules about when and how much force to use, a deputy who does decide to use force will have to fill out a report. Um, If part of the idea is for deputies to spend more time with inmates to keep things under control to begin with, uh, aren't you introducing more bureaucracy that could cost them time?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the report writing is an important aspect of that. And, and uh, again, trying to get the deputies to understand and to be able to articulate uh, why they're doing what they're doing. And we understand that that's going to take some resources. And, and so, um, one of the things that we're doing in addition to this in-service training is, um, you know, we're bringing on resources. We're, we're hiring almost 200 new deputies this year. Um, we're promoting a large group of individuals into, uh, supervisory roles. Um, we understand that, that in order for this policy to work, in order for the deputies to have the time uh, to, to step back and, and uh, write these reports and be accurate with them, we've got to provide them with the resources to that. And so um, that's something we're working on. We understand that. Um, we believe that by the time that we, we get some more of these academies graduated and we get staffing on the floor, that we will be able to accomplish that. Uh, But I'm committed to to advocating for the staff and and making sure that they get what they need in order to
0: to comply with this policy. Again, we asked for the union's thoughts on this reporting requirement in particular. And folks there are concerned that the people who decide whether the force used was justified will make subjective judgments. Here's Mike Jackson of the union again.
2: We think that this policy really gives the department the ability to discipline whoever they want, regardless if, if it's a good use of force or a bad use of force, it wouldn't even matter. It really will give them the ability to say, if, well, if they don't like a person, they use this policy against them. you know. And if they do like a person and it's a bad use of force, they'll use the policy to help that person.
0: What do you think?
1: Uh, you know, I, and I think I think we've got enough safeguards in place. You know, we have every investigation that we do is is uh, overseen by the independent monitor. Um, we have we have we have representation from the the Fraternal Order of Police when we have disciplinary hearings. Um, this is not the, the the decision to discipline or the decision whether a force was justified or not is not something that one person makes. It's something that's a uh, there's a lot of eyes on it, and I, and I believe it's a fair process.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Denver's uh, still fairly new sheriff. That is Patrick Furman. And uh, he, along with other city and county officials, have unveiled a new plan for deputies' use of force. Um, So I want to say that in 2014, the city and county hired a national consulting firm and paid $300,000 for an in-depth review of the sheriff's department. The report came out in May of last year. That was before you were appointed sheriff. Uh, it was very critical, identifying 14 separate key findings and 277 recommendations for improvement. Can you point to another change of direction besides the use of force policy that you are implementing? Yeah, um, I think a huge piece of that. And, and we've
1: talked uh, in the past about this idea of base building. Um, you know, none of these changes are going to be successful unless we have the resources available to do that. And so um, we were committed to bringing additional deputies on board. We just had a class uh, a couple of weeks ago, graduate of 80 new deputy recruits. We have a current sitting class of uh, 60 recruits, a little over 60 recruits. Um, we've got a... Um, a outside company that we've contracted with to conduct some promotional examinations for us uh, one of the, the uh, critiques of the department was that uh, the promotional process was not fair and did not look at the right uh, characteristics and so we've contracted with an outside agency to actually uh, conduct promotional exams that look at leadership skills uh, leadership qualities and so we're we're committed to uh, giving that test and and getting more supervision on the floor so that we can uh, have the supervisors get up into the, the housing units and do their rounds and uh, mentor the staff the deputies like like what they need to be doing um, we've uh, We're in the process of hiring some civilian people to take some of the responsibilities off of the shoulders of the supervisors. Uh, one an example of that would be our scheduling unit uh, rather than have deputies sit in a room and, and conduct scheduling or, or fill, fill out the schedules uh, we're going to get some civilians in there to to relieve them so that they can get out on the floors. Um, and take in in develop those relationships with the staff. Uh, we've done some reorganization with the department. Uh, we've created a a, a brand new uh, inmate management unit, which focuses on uh, really everything to do with inmate management: our classification unit, uh, our grievance process, our inmate programs. And so that that's new for the department, where we're we're changing our focus and kind of looking specifically at this idea of the the people that we work with. Um,
0: our strategic. We mentioned that the city paid almost $10 million in settlements in 2014 for lawsuits claiming excessive force. Uh, Just last November, a man having a psychotic episode died after deputies restrained him. He choked on his own vomit. Uh, It was ruled a homicide. The DA decided against prosecution. But let's step back. The Denver Post profiled you recently and described what they called your mantra to deputies, quoting here, you're going to be expected to treat people with dignity, no matter how they treat you. We are human beings who work with human beings in crisis. Uh, I guess to wrap up, have sheriff's deputies not met that standard of, of dignity in the past?
1: You know, I, I think I don't think it's been a focus, and I think that's the big change is that is that the focus now is on people, and it's and it's not just it, it's it's relationships with um, with supervisors, with deputies, uh, it's relationships with our community and engaging our community, and it's relationships with the inmates. And I think um, you know one of the unique things about what we do, um, especially when we talk about um, the d- detention facilities, is there's a um, you know there's this this uh, a sense of maintaining control um you know we're always outnumbered in the jails and so um you know a lot of times the 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 mantra is you need to maintain a professional distance with with the inmates and i think over time that kind of has developed into this uh not seeing them as necessarily as people but seeing them as inmates um, and I don't think we're unique to that. I think you know. I mean, I think if you look out in in society, in the communities, I think you know a lot of times the communities have that same thing, and they they look at inmates as just ex-cons or ex-felons, and so uh, everybody's grouped together, and, and uh, nobody wants to hire them or give them a chance. I think you know what are what, what we're focusing on is is looking at them as individuals, um, looking at them for for who they are, and and the fact that you know it's not our job to punish them. Um, the punishment is just that they're being locked up, they're mm-hmm. they're being separated from society, and so.
0: Um, we, you know, we're not here to, to punish them even more than that. Uh, I want to just clarify that we we said homicide uh, for that death and that homicide means that someone died at the hands of someone else. It's not necessarily a crime, just to be uh, crystal clear on that. Sheriff, thanks for Correct. being with us. Thanks. Sheriff Patrick Furman uh, was named to that position in October 2015. He joined us from his office downtown. And we'll be right back with Buddhism's roots in Colorado as the Dalai Lama visits this week. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Dalai Lama arrives in Boulder this week. CU and the Tibetan Association of Colorado are his hosts. This marks the third time His Holiness has come to CU Boulder. The city of Boulder has a reputation for being a Buddhist hub. Question is, how Buddhist is Boulder? Daily Camera features reporter and columnist Amy Heckel wanted to find out. And what she learned is that the reputation is warranted in some ways and uh, less warranted in others. She joins us from Boulder. Amy, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Let me say by way of background here that members of CU Boulder's student government traveled to California in 2014 to meet the Dalai Lama and then invite him to come to campus. Uh, It has been, I guess, about 18 years since his last Boulder visit. You explored Boulder's reputation as a hotbed for Buddhism, and you started with the numbers. What do the numbers tell us?
3: Well, um, the idea, well, the question came about when I was chatting with my editor, um, because I'm from Colorado. I'm a native here, and I've been working in Boulder for about 15 years at the Daily Camera. And um, so we all know that Boulder has this reputation as a real Buddhist hotspot, we've all seen a lot of the influence around around town and but we really we wanted to kind of quantify it. We were asking, you know, we have this huge, yeah, there's a stigma, but really what what is it exactly? How do you put numbers to it? How do you quantify it? Yeah. So we started digging and we were actually kind of surprised with what we found um, what, or what we didn't find maybe is more accurate. Um, there weren't a lot of studies on it to begin with. And when we reached out to a lot of the Buddhist centers in town, they didn't know either. Um, so you, they didn't really know. So uh, we reached out and we found two studies that were kind of interesting, but um, they weren't really – we didn't think that they really painted the full picture, um, and I'll explain why. Um, First, there was the U.S. Religion Census, which was um, a pretty comprehensive study that we found. And what it found (laughs) that was interesting was that Boulder County – so not just the city of Boulder, but it was a countywide study – the Boulder County had one of the state's top regions for the number of Buddhist congregations. So there were the mo- one of the state's largest number of congregations okay. in Boulder County. Um, and that wasn't a huge number, though. That was 11 to 20. Um, and talking to the Shambhala Center in Boulder, they said it was about a dozen that they knew of in this area. But that same study found that Boulder County's Buddhist population was actually lower than a lot of the other regions in Colorado. Um, And that was at less than a half percent and maybe as low as one tenth tenth of a percent. Um, And and to put that into context, um, the the U.S. population average – the U.S. population is 0.7 percent. So it's not really much different. Um, So what was strange to us was that we would have such a large number of congregations but not an extraordinary – large number of people identifying as Buddhist.
0: So what were more Buddhist places in Colorado? Because you mentioned that the concentrations were actually higher outside of Boulder.
3: Yeah. Um, well, let's see. The map, let's see, with um, within percentage of people or congregations, which one are you more interested oh, in? I suppose
0: both, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, so um, Boulder did have the highest number of what they called churches in the U.S. religious study. Um, it was more like congregations but it was tied with denver county so that was the equal um for that one but with the population um we were actually below boulder uh, below denver county and teller county um and the highest population was actually Sawatch and archuleta down south um with and they had the highest population of five percent so um or higher so when, of course, those are smaller regions too. You know, population wise, so the percentage could be skewed.
0: Indeed, uh, per capita, but uh, y- y- those numbers don't necessarily give us the the whole picture, right? Because there are people who may v- identify very much with Buddhist s- sentiment or views, and not necessarily call themselves Buddhist. M- might that continue to make up the picture in Boulder?
3: Right. That's kind of what we were hypothesizing. And we don't, you know, of course, religious affiliation is really hard to measure. And especially in a community like Boulder, um, which has been, uh, which was called the the Gallup poll ranked Boulder as the second least religious in quotes city in the United States, with 61% of people in Boulder, identifying as not religious. So you may have people in Boulder who study Buddhism, who even practice it, but don't want to be classified as Buddhist, maybe?
0: (laughs) So the Boulder Shambhala Center uh, was founded by influential Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and uh, he said that Shambhala tradition sees that this is a time of greed and anger, but that everyone has the ability to be good. He also says of the concept of Shambhala.
4: Once upon a time it was a kingdom which is based on a notion of a total enlightened society. And the world is not going to be saved purely by religion alone. But the world can be saved also secular enlightenment. So that is the meaning of Shambhala.
0: And that is from the Shambhala archives and a talk that he gave in Boulder in the late 1970s. Um, You spoke with the Boulder Shambhala Center's executive director, Melanie Klein, and she told you Boulder is, quote, unusually Buddhist. What do you think she meant?
3: Um, Well, the context was in the um, demographics of Boulder, with Boulder being obviously a largely white community, um, 91 percent white. um, Most of the populations around the world that practice Buddhist uh, Buddhism are not necessarily Western white. So yeah, I guess that that's what she meant by that. But um, there are a lot of secular influences that are secular organizations in Boulder that have been influenced by Buddhism, but don't identify as Buddhist as well, like the Naropa, Naropa University, University, for example. University,
0: yeah. right. Uh, and that was founded by Trungpa Rinpoche after he relocated to Boulder. You spoke with the school's president, Chuck Leaf. And uh, he told you that Naropa is a secular school with, with Buddhist principles, and thus that, that blend that you describe there. So um, is it possible that some or many of Boulder's Buddhists align with, say, the meditation practices and the philosophies of the faith just much more loosely than those who, who call themselves purely Buddhist? I, th- I think that's the takeaway here.
3: Yeah, exactly. And another thing, um, another interesting thing that I learned when I was talking to the Shambhala Center um, that makes you think that those that those studies um, don't paint the full picture is the Shambhala Center's numbers alone for membership are actually th- more than three times um, the amount or the number. Reported from another religious study, another study with the Association of Religious Data Archives. So Shambhala reported that they have six hundred members, like active members, but they have an additional four thousand members who are involved more peripherally, plus thousands of other people who have been involved over the past forty years. Um, And those numbers alone don't don't match up with the studies, Mm. which makes yeah, it makes you think the studies are missing something.
0: Thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Amy Heckel features a reporter and columnist for the Daily Camera. Her article is called How Buddhist is Boulder? And Boulder is just part of the picture. In Denver, you'll find Buddhist temples with Chinese and Japanese lineages. One with particularly deep roots is the Tri State Denver Buddhist Temple. It is a century old this year. And as the Dalai Lama visits Colorado, we've invited Richard Yoshida to join us. He's a longtime temple leader and member and co-wrote a book about its history. And uh, Richard, welcome to the program.
4: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: You trace the origins of Japanese Buddhism in Colorado to the late 1800s, early 1900s. Japanese immigrants came to southern Colorado. Some of them eventually settled in Denver and the Rocky Ford areas. Uh, I understand the establishment of Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple is attributed to the arrival of a Buddhist minister in 1916 who came to visit these immigrants. Uh, Who was this person? That's correct.
4: His name is Reverend Desio Ono. He was our first minister officially here. Actually, he uh, made a trip in 19... um, 19... the year before 1915 with two other ministers to check it out. And, And with the immigration... Uh, from uh, Japan. There are a lot of people coming to the farming communities. One is Rocky Ford and San Luis Valley. And then they were, you know, the big city in Denver. They decided to live here, too. So, and he, he established the first Buddhist church in Denver, but serviced these outlying areas at the same time. I see. And
0: <clears throat> is it true that that first temple was located in a former
4: brothel? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was called, uh, it's in Denver. It's on 1942 Market Street. It is a beautiful building right now. In fact, it's, it's been converted into a rest, restaurant. In those days, uh, it, it was hard to find places for Japanese um, people to actually find places for businesses, for a church or anything like that. So they congregated in an area that was kind of, you know, not the best, but they were able to afford a building. And it was called Matty's Silk's uh, House of Mirrors. It was a brothel. We did not know it at that time. That's all we could afford. The building was big enough. And the,
0: and the price was right. The price was right. Yeah, Maddie Silks, a very famous madam in Colorado history. Uh, the temple expanded during World War II, and that was in part to take in Japanese-American families leaving California. Exactly. So, of course, in internment camps looming large in the background there. Tell me more about that. Exactly.
4: Uh, you probably have heard, in fact, most people know the um, War Relocation Authority forced uh, people out of the west coast and a lot of, into the inland areas, some in, as far as Arkansas. One was in Colorado, the southwest part, uh, in a place called Granada, and they formed the um, Amache internment camp.
0: Camp Amache, indeed. Yes, but that would have meant an influx of and more, exactly, of more Buddhists.
4: Exactly. Now, Governor Carr, Ralph Carr, accepted Japanese into this, his state, and he was actually opposed to the to the uh, War Relocation uh, Authority. So it was easier for people to come in like I moved in from California and was able to not go into the camps, but after the camps, you know there were seven thousand plus grew up to ten thousand in uh amachi and after the, the, they were let after the authority was um uh, <clears throat> it ended, then they were dispersed, and the place that was the most logical was Denver Indeed. So it had swelled.
0: Yeah, the temple's building was expanded again after the war. So yes. in the 1970s, you think of urban renewal and the creation of Tamai Tower, Sakura exactly. Square in Denver. What did that do for the Japanese Buddhist community in Denver?
4: Well, you know, the, it's, the, 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 the area is called Sakura Square, which is where we are in right now. Uh, it was uh, a hotel, not a hotel, an apartment building was built there to house our uh, elders. And then eventually we we got a loan through the uh, uh, HUD, Housing Authority, and we were able to build a nice building. And that loan uh, matured in 2014, so we're able to pay it off. And now we're expanding into trying to get the identity of Japanese culture to stay in that area and also uh, using that as a means to keep... Tri state Denver Buddhist temple alive in a while, well.
0: which is just across the street, correct? Yes, yeah, no well, it's in the same block, same block. Uh, tell me more about the specific kind of Buddhism practiced at the temple, Jodo Shinshu. Mm-hmm. the temple says it has an emphasis on quote everyday Buddhism for ordinary people yeah,
4: I'm an ordinary person <laughs> 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 and uh, yes it's 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 to a degree jodo Shinshu Buddhism is is very simple and yet it's very difficult, it's hard to understand it, We're all trying to attain what we call the state of enlightenment. And uh, in our uh, particular denomination, we feel that it's very difficult to get there on our own. So we rely on what we call the Nembutsu or uh, repeating the word namo amidabutsu, which is the Nembutsu every day, over and over, with the realization that Amida Buddha, which is a manifestation of the uh, enlightenment that we're looking for, that we will indeed become a Buddha when we die, so we don't. and That's why we live a life of thankfulness, and it's good for a common person like myself.
0: And what you were describing there was was a form of meditation in in yes, saying in saying that in that a form term? of
4: meditation. But we don't, as far as Jodo Shinshu, um, we don't we don't concentrate too much on meditation. We do meditate quite a bit. We do a lot of sutra chanting, which at the same time uh, we are meditating. But uh, it's more the meditation and the, it's more like just repetition of the word Namo Butsu to yourself and just repeating it over and over.
0: This is Jodo Shinshu. We are learning about the many faces of Buddhism in Colorado as the Dalai Lama uh, comes to this state. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the, the demographics of the congregation? Because what we, what we heard in yeah. Boulder is that it's a very white Buddhist community, for instance. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, you know, it used to be strictly Japanese when when it started out. As you, uh, and then we this Tri-State Buddhist Temple is Tri-State because it, it originally encompassed Colorado, Wyoming, and Nebraska, but it spread out to New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and all the areas. They were all mostly all farming communities at that time, mostly all Japanese. And as as time goes on and demographics change, they move out. People get married and then they are moving to Denver. A lot of them are moving to Denver. Well, if you go come to our uh, particular services now, you, you, and you look in there, it's not Japanese anymore. It's very well assimilated into well. There's whites, blacks, browns. You know, no, no matter what, it's 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 going along with the saying saying in our religion that um, Daikichi accepts everyone equally.
0: And so you're seeing a real diversity, which was yes, not true are. necessarily in the beginning. What place does the Dalai Lama uh, hold for those practicing Japanese lineages of Buddhism, just really briefly?
4: Yeah, you know, we, the way we look at the Dalai Lama is uh, we respect him and we we understand what he's trying to do. And um, he's just trying to attain, attain enlightenment for everyone. And then we're just trying to follow our own way to get there.
0: You see him as on a similar path to your own. Thank you for being with with us, Richard. Thank you. Richard Yoshida is on the 100th Anniversary Committee for the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple. Buddhism has taken root in Colorado beyond the Front Range, as we've heard. Heading southwest in the state, you'll find Buddhist monasteries and retreats like the Crestone Mountain Zen Center, founded in 1988, and Tara Mandala in Pagosa Springs. About 60 miles west of there is the Durango Dharma Center, which just got its own space in January. The group began 15 years ago, practicing in people's living rooms. A similar story in Grand Junction, where Larry Clark formed a meditation group in his home in the early 70s. That was after a retreat at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, where he met a Zen master.
4: It was the sheer presence of the Zen master that completely uh, swayed my decision to do that as the primary thing that I wanted to do in life.
0: And he now leads a small practice in Grand Junction called Dharma Mountain Zen Center. Again, the 14th Dalai Lama visits CU Boulder Thursday. The Dalai Lama's teaching sessions will be live-streamed. Tomorrow, we explore the politics and culture around His Holiness, and if He might just be the last Dalai Lama. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A note, if any children are listening, this next interview is about sex. But it is not terribly sexy. Lakewood author Tom Lamar calls himself a geezer dad. He and his wife had a child later in life. Lamar was 47, and they had to work hard to become parents. Regimented intercourse, years of fertility treatments, including artificial insemination. Quote, I had succeeded in removing the pleasure from sex, Lamar writes, Now, with the doctor's help, we were about to eliminate the bothersome sex altogether. His new memoir about this is called Geezer Dad. So anytime I say that, they're your words, not mine, Tom. (laughs) Welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'd like to have you start by reading from early on in the book. Your first few attempts at getting pregnant had not been successful. So you and your wife, Sam, whose name you've changed in the book, uh, you buckle down. Yes. We scheduled our intercourse.
2: The word lovemaking no longer applied. So that it coincided with her peak ovulation, the result was Mussolini's sex getting those trains into the station on time with no thought for joy, desire, or human frailty. No sooner had the last passenger disembarked from the 9:15 outbound than Sam pushed me aside and twisted herself into positions that showed more respect for gravity than basic comfort or the visuals burning themselves into her husband's long-term memory. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's funny as you write it. And this book is very funny. But what was that like for your marriage? It was stressful. Obviously, we both
2: had the same goal in mind, for the most part. But the clinical, uh, very obsessive aspect of this, of wanting to have a child, we had started by uh, with a pregnancy that resulted in a miscarriage. So we knew we could get pregnant. So it was very frustrating. It was a very big surprise. We always knew we were going to be slightly older parents. We never thought we were going to be geezer dad. So uh, nature did not cooperate when we were finally ready to start that family. And why did you decide to wait till later in life to have a child? Well, partly indecision where uh, I think we were just enjoying life. We traveled a lot and uh, a lot of career stuff, the typical cliches. But my wife, we moved to Colorado. My wife actually returned to school and got her first degree.
0: Circumstance. Circumstance. Often gets in the way.
2: And we also thought it wouldn't be such a difficult thing when we finally got around to it. Right.
0: What fears did you have about becoming a father? And I don't even mean just a geezer dad, but just a dad.
2: Well, partly the set in my ways. I was Again, I was already enjoying my life as it was, but I knew I liked children. I like my nephews and nieces. And also I wondered if I'd be a good parent. I can look around and I probably—now I see more examples of good parents than bad, but at that point I think I focused more on bad parents and thought— why did they do it? Why, you know, so I did not want to be another bad parent. The world did not need that.
0: But the people around you who knew you saw in you the makings of a good father.
2: Yes, they did. And uh, I saw those things come to the surface. And uh, now I would describe myself as a dad first
0: above everything else, where I
2: love being a parent.
0: So as, as I mentioned, this book is very funny. And I think at times you use humor to deal with some very heavy topics like miscarriage. Uh, your wife actually had several of them. Did the humor come along afterwards, or was it your coping mechanism at the time as well That's
2: a great question because i I actually was asking myself that question lately, and a bit of both where humor helps you get through everything in life. but I would think some of it was shortly afterward looking back on it to and partly as motivation to keep going forward the therapy writing the book was therapy too, where it was good to write it down in a humorous mode that other people could read but Humor is just necessary for life. That's all I can say. It's an an important thing.
0: How do you think the experience of the miscarriage has differed for you and for your wife?
2: Well, it it was much more serious for my wife where obviously the internal mechanism, to her, that was a loss. That was like losing a child. And to me, honestly, I, I was optimistic in many ways. I thought we can get pregnant and next time it will go right. So I didn't see it the same way
0: in many respects at all. And did you have to come to terms with her view of it. And was there tension around that? There was tension. And, and yes, I had to
2: come to, to grips with her view of it or come to understand it and see it through her eyes. But I, th- I think she did the same thing, too, where you know she did see the logic. And logic wasn't a popular thing right then, but the logic and what I was saying that this is going to happen.
0: Right. Logic isn't the popular thing right then, the right thing to say. What is the right thing to say for, right. f- for a, hu- a husband or a partner after a miscarriage? Did you find it? In time, I did, and
2: probably the right thing to do is buy flowers and say we're going through this together, and we will, we will get through this together. There will be a, a happy ending to this.
0: This is some really intimate stuff that you're writing about in this book. Why make it public? Well,
2: I've been I've seen it in print that this was was a hard book to write, and that's absolutely not true. I'm I have a writing addiction. I'd had two novels published and seemed to me something interesting was actually happening in my life I should write about. It. And I honestly didn't really think about what it would be like to see it come out. And proofing the this right before it came out, getting the proof versions, I got very, very cold feet. I started wondering, why am I sharing this with the public? But the real reason for that is when we were going through all our decision-making and our setbacks, we were reading lots of books like Anne Lamott's Operating Instructions, which inspired, helped inspire me to do this. And I just thought, where's the book? Where's the book for people getting older as this goes on, especially men, wondering if there's a good outcome, wondering if you're all alone, and seeing what your options were. And I always thought there was a
0: A vacuum
2: of of information. Yeah, I was sure somebody was going to hand me this book, and when they didn't, I realized
0: I would probably have to write it myself. And the book is Geezer Dad. We're speaking with Lakewood author Tom Lamar. How I survived infertility clinics, fatherhood jitters, and eventually things that go whack in the night. When you are having trouble getting pregnant as a couple, how do you start to view couples who are pregnant? Well, my wife certainly did not handle that well. She was joking
2: about that recently, about all she could see were pregnant women. And all our friends talked about were their kids. And I didn't remember that at all. I remember, yes, kids came up, but so did many other things like books and music and life in general. But all she saw
0: were the pregnant couples. And so was there jealousy, do you think? There was, yeah, definite
2: jealousy. Uh-huh. No doubt
0: about it. Someone announces to you they're pregnant and you have to you have to be gleeful for them. And at the same time think, I wish that were me, I guess. Yep. And to be honest, too, as, as a man,
2: I've, pregnancy never looked that attractive to me. That having a baby looked like a lot of work, but <laughs> that was an experience she wanted. And she always wanted an infant. So the ultimate solution of adoption comes into play there and... and proved a very good uh, solution to our problems.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, at one point, you and your wife began thinking about adoption because the fertility treatments just aren't going very well. Do you think that you and Sam, uh, your your wife, do you think you reached that point at different times?
2: Yeah, we did reach that point at different times where there there's plenty of evidence all around us of happy adoptive parents. We started learning that a lot of our friends were actually adopted and, and learned how many people had adopted children. And it, again, the logic was causing me a problem because I thought, they, that just looks like such a good solution.
0: Everybody seems so happy. Because here we are pouring time and money into fertility. Why not just go the adoption route? So you arrived there sooner than your wife. Yes, I did. And, and also thinking
2: about the, the time as well as the money, it just seemed like there was no certain outcome or no likely outcome to the fertility. That, that could just add a lot more time to it.
0: Yeah. And you eventually settle on an adoption agency. You are asked to produce a ten minute video about your family, your home, and this was an awkward experience.
2: yes, it was very awkward where first of all, right away, you consider what are other people going to produce How do you make yours different? There was just a lot of pressure on how to get it right, what to put in there, but our filming did not go very well where we were very self conscious. We filmed outside, and as a ter- a friend helped us film it as a- as it turned out, the special effects of airplanes flying overhead would drown us out whenever we did say something pertinent or poignant or intelligent. And we rarely said anything (laughs) intelligent in in the filming. Well,
0: they apparently were not looking for a Hollywood blockbuster because you you wound up um, getting to the top of the waiting list. And this is when Evelyn comes into your life. And what was that call like? I think the phone rings. Well, it was
2: very surprising where uh, we were used to talking with our caseworker. She, you know, kept us in the loop, but we were expecting a a two-year wait or longer and she'd given us hints that things are moving faster here than we anticipated. But we were very, caught very much off guard when she called to say there was actually an adoption in the works.
0: And how old were you when the call came?
2: Mm, Got to think about that. I guess I was 47 because I turned 47. 48 a few months after we adopted.
0: Very quickly, hardest thing about being a geezer dad? Mm, um,
2: I can think of right now all the positive things oh, come, could we give to, come me us let's,
0: let's end on that. Positive. Well,
2: <laughs> I'm a very appreciative father and I I don't take, take things for granted. I savor each hug. I savor each good grade. I love being around my daughter. And the thing about being a good father, I am determined to stay one. That's my big goal in life. Stick around and be a good dad.
0: Thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: A friend of mine. Omar lives in Lakewood. His new memoir is called Geezer Dad, How I Survived Infertility Clinics, Fatherhood Jitters, Adoption Weight Limbo, and Things That Go Wah in the Night. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Russia is fiercely proud of an artist named Vasily Konovalenko. He did intricate carvings that depict everyday life. Surprisingly, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science has the largest collection of his pieces outside of Russia. A team from the museum recently returned from Moscow to loan a few pieces to the Kremlin. Let's listen back to a story from 2014 about the collection. Here is CPR contributor Lee Strubinger. Konovalenko's widow, Anna, describes one of her husband's works of art. This is a very common thing in Russia,
5: ice fishing. The carved gemstone shows a man bundled up against the cold, fishing with a line. It's one of 20 gems carved by Konovalenko on display. Anna says he fell in love with the art form.
0: Create sculptures which will be as expressive as a painting. He decided, yes, yeah, this is my field.
5: Another one of the gems is called The Painter. It's based on a man Konovalenko hired to paint his Leningrad apartment in the 1960s. When the sculptor returned home, Anna says he found a vodka-induced mess.
0: Everything around were covered with white paint, and nothing was properly done. You know, this is very funny.
5: Steve Nash is a curator with the museum. He says Konovalenko's carved gems ended up in Denver thanks to a museum trustee. Alvin Cohen learned of Konovalenko's work through a friend who was a jewelry dealer in New York City. Nash says Cohen became transfixed by the art and purchased several sculptures. He donated them to the museum 30 years ago. It opened as a temporary exhibition for one year only, and it was so popular that it was extended for a year, and then another year, and then another year. And why do you think this collection was so popular? What do you think it teaches us? Even though the sculptures were created by uh, Russian-Ukrainian artist master gem carver there's a universal whimsicality to these creations the faces at once are accurate depictions of people and yet mildly cartoonish sometimes very cartoonish and everybody has a sense of humor it's one of the cultural universals and then the vibrant colors the challenge of working with many many different stone types um literally there is only one artist in the world who was capable of doing this and that was Vasily Konovalenko The museum has published a book documenting Konovalenko's sculptures. They include the second-largest collection of his carvings displayed at a Moscow
0: museum. For CPR News, I'm Lee Strupinger. See Konovalenko's work for yourself at cprnews.org or in person, because what wasn't shipped to Russia remains on display at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Finally today, a trail report. Last week, we talked about hikes to waterfalls, and at the tail end of the interview, our guest mentioned Boulder Falls. Indeed, it's a waterfall close to the metro area, but the trail to it is closed, has been, since the floods. The Colorado Matters theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can follow our show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.